All right, when I was growing up, we followed that rule that, you know, it wasn't until after Thanksgiving you could listen to Christmas songs. But the way we did it, so we had, um, uh, our stereo was this big uh, wooden box uh, with speakers built into it, and it had a turntable in it. And on the turntable, you could stack multiple albums, and you just play one, and the next one would drop right after it. And so we would, we would play Christmas songs uh, one album at a time, at least one side of an album. You'd go through those five albums, and then you'd flip them over and listen to the other half of the songs. And that's how old people do it, all right? <laughs> so now you get to curate your list. You get to come up with your own list of Christmas songs. So here's the question. Let's say you're on a deserted island and you can only bring five Christmas songs with you. I don't know what that would be like, um, why you would bring Christmas songs. But let's say you could only bring five Christmas songs with you. What would make your top five list? Well, Billboard has their list and the ones that made the top, and I guess this is because how much they're played or requested or how they stream, but here are the top five. See if these line up with your top five Christmas songs. Number five, Bing Crosby, White Christmas, 1947. Number four, number four, Wham! Last Christmas, 1984. Good old Wham! Nat King Cole comes in at number three, the Christmas song, Merry Christmas to You. That's from 1961. Darlene Love comes in at number two with Christmas, Baby Please Come Home, 1963. And number one, what's your guess? Yeah, it's Mariah Carey, right? Mariah Carey. Nothing says, um, yay Jesus, like uh, all I want for Christmas is you. That's... That just brings a tear to my eye. So this Advent, we're, um, we're turning our attention not just to a top five, but what it, what's the ultimate Christmas playlist? And so we're turning to Scripture. And there are these places in Scripture where uh, we have the story of Christ captured in song, in poetic song. Uh, and so we'll be uh, looking at five different um, songs Isaiah's song of prophecy, Mary's song of praise, Zechariah's song of pardon, Simeon's song of promise, and the angel's song of peace. Today it's Isaiah's song of prophecy. And just as Jane was saying that Isaiah was writing some 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is in the latter part of the 8th century. So from the years like 739 to 701, this, he's talking about the events that are going on during that time. And if you know a little bit, just a little bit about uh, the history of, of God's people, that, that there was a, a time that they were one nation, that they had moved into the promised land and they had asked for a king, and God gave them a king. And so under Saul, David, and Solomon, they were one people, one nation state, that it was just the people of God together. After the time of Solomon, they divided into two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was bigger, and it 
was more profitable, but it was severely messed up. The kings were making decisions that were going against the way of God. The, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, it had Jerusalem. That was what it had going for it. The, the place that God had said, this is the city. This is where the, the, uh, the tabernacle, the, uh, the temple would be. And, and yet they were still messed up too. And what we have is that God would send prophets both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom so that the people would know what it would mean to return to God and how God would say, listen, that pattern of behavior that you're exhibiting, where your heart is today is not good for you. It doesn't honor me. And so Isaiah was primarily a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, um, although he did speak to the condition in the northern kingdom of Israel, which, by the way, was uh, in the midst of his ministry, uh, uh, had Assyria come in. Assyria is a whole other player in this. God using an empire, the Assyrian empire. By the way, here's a picture of it. The, the orange section of the picture is kind of the heartland of Assyria. But get this, the Assyria empire went from uh, the 14th century B.C. all the way to the 6th century B.C. Now, they weren't always as powerful as at their peak uh, it would ebb and flow depending upon how strong a particular leader was. If a leader was weak, then their dominance abroad would kind of suffer and they would focus on more of the heartland. And, and then when they had a strong leader, they would go and push their, their way out and, and take on Egypt or, or Palestine area or what, whatever it might be. So it's in this situation that Isaiah writes. And just to give us a sense, a flavor of the context, the actual feel of what was going on. Before we read our passage, let me read to us a section from Isaiah chapter 1. This is verses 2 through 4. You'll, you'll get a sense of what Isaiah was speaking into. Isaiah writes, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now he quotes the Lord. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that ends the quote, and then Isaiah continues, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's the context into which Isaiah is writing. So when we get to our passage for today, in chapter 9, um, we find that there's this song, this song of prophecy. And listen to these words and be thinking about the context into which these words are spoken. Hear the word of God, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden 
and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. May God shine his favor upon us as we come under his word today. All right, so uh, here's what we're doing. We're going to talk about hope. This song that, that we just heard, this, this song of Isaiah, this song of prophecy is a song of, of hope. The three things we're going to do, we're going to talk about uh, what it isn't. We're going to talk about what it is. And we'll talk about what it's good for. So hope, what isn't it? What is it, and what is it good for? First, hope, what isn't it? You know, it's important. It can be really helpful to know what's, what something isn't. For instance, if I'm trying to lose some weight and, and, you know, maintain healthy diet and all that kind of stuff, it's super important for me to know that food isn't entertainment, right? That, that, that there, it, it can be this kind of approach of, I tell you, that brownie was really good. It was delightful. I know. I think I might have two or three more because I was so entertained by it. If I'm trying to watch my diet, trying to lose weight, trying to be healthy, I need to know that food's primary uh, reason for existing is not to entertain me, to delight me. It's also not a source of security. You know, I don't know if you've ever been. I've been there. You've had a rough day. You come home. And you just know, if I only had a bowl of ice cream, life would be so much better. And so I go and I put ice cream in a bowl and I sit there and I just think, thank you God for ice cream. But we, you know that ice cream is not really a, a substantive source of security. If I'm trying to watch my weight and trying to watch my diet and trying to be healthy, I need to know the primary uh, um, purpose of food that it isn't. It isn't security. So when it comes to the biblical understanding of hope, it really is to our advantage to understand what it is not. The biblical understanding of hope, what it is not. It is not a hope that is centered in us. It is not a hope that then is achieved by us. And it's not a hope that in and of itself is self-fulfilling as though I can hope something into existence. According to the Bible, according to Scripture, we cannot be the source and the basis of our own hope. As an example, let's say you wanted, uh, you wanted your kitchen redone. You wanted your kitchen remodeled. And, and you turned to me. You said, you said, hey, Bob, 
why don't you remodel our kitchen? And uh, that would really be a bad decision on your choice. You could hope all you wanted to in me possibly developing and giving you the kitchen of your dreams. But I lack the, the tools, I lack the time, and mostly I lack the skill uh, to be able to deliver the, the kitchen of your dreams. So you could turn to me, and you could hope in me, but I would be a poor source of the vision you desire. I wouldn't be able to produce that. Yet the, the silly thing, maybe the foolish thing, is that we hope like this all the time. We settle for hope in what we can do ourselves all the time. Listen to this. Um, let me make a list of some things and just think about the way that you go about basing your hope in that area of your life and how you work to achieve um, the fulfillment of that hope. So here's the list. Security. Freedom. Opportunity. Advancement. Protection. Power. Self-expression. Identity. Associations. A sense of community. A sense of well-being. Listen, by no doing of my own, I was born into this world as um, uh, a middle-class American white male, which in our, our world's culture means that I have a level of, uh, of privilege, that I have this ability to go about conducting life pretty much the way I want to conduct it, middle-class American white male. Um, so I come into this world already displayed of going, listen, if it has to do with security, I, I know this from my parents. This is how they went about doing it too. I, we have uh, our retirement funds. That's going to secure us for the future. Uh, we've got insurance, so I'm kind of secure from if things pop up. I've, uh, I can get a doorbell that has a camera on it, and I can be secure that way, and I can, I can provide for my security, and I settle for my security. In fact, I devote a lot of my life to making sure that my ways of being secure could be able to fulfill the hope that I have in them. And we go through each one of those things, freedom. We, we could go, you know, that, gosh, I, I depend on my country to make sure that I'm free or that, that, um, I, that I'm, I'm going to have work-life balance so that I'm free. And we go after these things as though we can fulfill our own hope in our life through our own management of the world around us. We can be a people accustomed to abundance and privilege, especially in our context. So we're used to having options, managing our hope. According to Scripture, though, there's actually reasons why we can't be the source of the kind of hope that God alone can provide. It is a fair question. Why can't we be the basis and the producers of that for which we hope for? The three reasons in Scripture for this, one is we're limited creatures. We're not God. 
we, we come into this world, we have a limited lifespan, we, we have limited influence, we, we don't have the ability to control all things, we're limited. But the bigger answer in Scripture is because we have this fatal flaw of our fallenness. This is a big piece of the story in Scripture, that, that there's this original couple that, that they had this op- opportunity to either continue to go with God or to, to choose a different path forward, and they listened to the voice of the serpent, and they chose that way instead of God's way. And, and there was a brokenness that entered into all of humanity, and this, this fallenness is a fatal flaw. And yet, even knowing that it exists, we keep going forward with it all the time. The problem with all of us is that we're not ultimately good. We routinely entertain things like pride and selfishness and gluttony and jealousy and envy and wrath and just we make decisions. Even the kindest person, even the person that wants the best for others, there's, there's just this brokenness in us that from one generation to the next generation is handed down. We're limited creatures. We have this fatal flaw of our fallenness. And then finally, hope just, it's not a power unto itself. Yes, we know positive thinking can make a difference in our life. We know that if if you have a sense of hope, that that you have this, you, you come across challenges and you'll have a different attitude about the challenges. Absolutely. But it's not the kind of hope that can overcome the results of the brokenness that we share together. But biblical hope, saving hope, enduring hope, life-altering hope, difference-making hope, thankfully, it cannot be centered in humanity, and it cannot be produced by humanity. It turns out to be bigger and better and more powerful than anything based in us or centered in us. So let's talk about biblical hope. What is it? What is it? Have you ever been to a restaurant where you have a menu and, and you look at the menu and there's things on the menu that you have no idea what they are? Like maybe you go to a restaurant that, that's, that has food from a, a different culture, a culture that, that you didn't grow up in. And, and so there's something that they just put in there and there's no description. Like you're just expected to know what it is. So I happen to like sushi. And I enjoy going to sushi restaurants, but most of the sushi restaurants seem to assume that if you're at their sushi restaurant, you better know what every kind of sushi is. And I don't go often enough to remember all these things, and they don't put pictures like this up on the screen. And so you show up at, at a sushi restaurant, and I love sushi, and, and they have the, here's our list of sashimi or nigiri or jirashi or... And you're going, wait a minute, I don't even know what those are. Now, for some of you, this is an easy decision because you hate all sushi. <laughs> and, and so you just go, I don't like anything on the menu. It's a sushi restaurant. How can I like anything? It's helpful to know what something is. Because if you just order it, and you just hope for the best. It's just helpful to know what something is. So let's turn to our passage, because I think our passage, I know our passage, it lays out for us what biblical hope is all about. 
In order to get at it, we're actually going to pick up verse 1. Um, we'll take a look at verse 1. We'll put it up on the screen. If you have your Bible, boy, I encourage you to, to have it open before you. Here's, here's what, how v- verse 1, it again, describes the context for us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, there's a lot of contextual references going on there. So if we're not used to that, you know, if it had said uh, Galesburg or uh, Normal or uh, places we're used to, we might understand what's going on. What's taking place, the first thing I want us to notice is notice the change in the verbs at the beginning. But there will be, that's future, gloom for her who was, that's past tense. There's going to be a change. You know the way it was? There's going to be a time in the future, it's going to be different. And then he has this uh, description, the former time, again, the way it was, he talks about the latter time, the way it's going to be. In the former time, he brought into contempt, God brought into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are two of the uh, tribes of Israel, and they would have been in the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel. And so there was a time when they were in contempt, they were not living according to the way of God. But there will be a time. There will be a time when he will have made that glorious, that area a glorious area. God is at work. A pastime of stuff not so good. In a future time where God makes it completely good. And so that sets up the context then for this song of hope that Isaiah presents. What we first then get in verses 2 and 3, when we look at verses 2 and 3, it describes um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So darkness, light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. This God who works and provides this future, this future reality, it's light over darkness. We find in verse 3, you, you, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when the, they divide the spoil. Listen, you used to be smaller. It's going to be expanded. It's going to be abundant. Used to, you're used to scarcity. God's going to make it abundance. That's what God's going to provide, this contrast, what was and what is to come, a future that God promises. And then what God lays out, is how he works this into being. One thing we can note here already is even the way it's talked about, it's as though it's already done. God's promise of the future is so dependable that we can speak of it and live according to it as though it's already completed right now. Look at the way he gets this done. Look at verse 4. He says, For the yoke of his burden the people's burden, the yoke of the people's burden, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God, you have broken this. The reference here is to a a battle during the time of Gabriel, who was a judge in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, where God said to Gabriel, you know, you have all these army guys, I tell you what, send the bulk of them home. 
In fact, let's dwindle you down to 300 people so that when you're victorious, people will know I'm the one who provided victory for you and it's not because of you. And so he's saying, listen, on that day, there's going to be a future day that's going to be just like that. And God's going to provide uh, for great victory. And again, this, the, the oppression is what's being broken by God. Again, just like I said before, I was, through no part of my own, I was born a middle-class American uh, white male. So when I think of oppression, it's hard for me to come up with what oppression that could, just because of my status that I'm, I'm born into. But there's people all over the world that can resonate with the kind of oppression that's being described here. Unfortunately, uh, uh, people with kind of my background, that, that they will take a passage like this and just say, you know what, this is really just talking about spiritual oppression and, and, and that when Jesus comes, he's just going to cover sin. But there are huge, in fact, the majority of the people in this world, they know all too well political oppression, economic oppression, uh, sexual oppression, um, all kinds of different oppression that goes on. And the description that's going on here is that here's what God's going to do. In the end, he will break all oppression. In fact, it's so, so such a promise that you can trust, that you can live today as though that oppression has already been broken. You are free. Verse 5, the second of the four is being described here. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is an argument they describe it as the, uh, um, the lesser to the greater. And so if you take all of the shoes and the clothing that were used in battle, there's going to be no need for it. It's just all going to take, be wrapped up and just burned. There's, there's no more need for this. It's all gone. In other words, that in the day that God is establishing, that will, he, he will establish so much so you can trust that it's already done today, that there is no more conflict and no more violence. This is what God promises. And then in verse 6, the third of the three fours that come at us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The way that God's going to get this done, the means that God will use, to, the, the substantial means in which we can place all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our expectation, is going to do it through a child. Here's what Isaiah does with this whole child motif, because it's used elsewhere in his, in his prophecy. It's, it's going to be a human. It's going to be one who is born into this world. It's going to be a child. And then what Isaiah does is he pairs it with those, those titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are divine uh, statements, these, these acclamations. A, a human child combined with Wonderful Counselor, completely wise, Almighty God, completely powerful. Um. Everlasting Father, the, the keeper of the covenant, but not from our side, from God's side. The keeper of the covenant, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Prince of wholeness, shalom, in his land, in his kingdom. In fact, the kingdom is then described for us in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. His kingdom, justice, and righteousness. And what brings it about is the passion of God. Not the want of the people, not the need of the people, but the passion, the zeal of the Lord. Biblical hope is centered in God, in Jesus Christ. God, Christ, is the basis and the means by which this hope is realized. It's a hope worked by God, worked by Christ on the cross. All right. If that's what hope is, what biblical hope is, hope, what is it good for? Absolutely everything. Yeah, right? Okay, everyone's playing the tune in their head right now. Absolutely everything. God, just as Jane was describing, God spoke hope 700 years before Jesus actually was born. He said, listen, you can count on it. In fact, you can live today as though it's already accomplished for you. 700 years before Jesus was born. We might ask, well, what good was that? What good was that for those who heard the word when Isaiah uh, proclaimed it? There's this uh, Swiss Reformed theologian uh, last century, Emil Brunner. He made this statement about hope. He said, what oxygen is for the lungs, such is hope for the meaning of human life. The fate of humanity is dependent on its supply of hope. God speaks his goodness into our broken reality because as oxygen is for the lung, hope is for humanity. So he speaks ahead of his works. In fact, there's a, a, another scholar that uh, had made the statement, hope means the presence of of a future. You know, in the biblical drama, if you go back and you read the whole story of the Bible, you go through the whole story of the Bible, just time and time again, the big drama, the big piece, it's repeated from one episode to the next episode. That's a choice. Where will the people place their hope? Will they place their hope in something else or will they place it in God? To place hope in God isn't just to place it in the outcome. I think sometimes in our managed life here, with all of our opportunity and all of our privilege and all the choices and we're so used to managing that we say, you know, God, I'll give you a tip of hat. I, there's some things I can't manage. I can't manage things that happen after I die. So I tell you what, I'm going to place my hope in you for things that happen after I die, but the rest of it, I've got it covered. So I'm going to live my life the way I want to, but when I die... <sighs> Just shine your grace on me, okay? Would you just shine? And I'll, I'll take care of the rest. But that's to, to mistake the, the outcome, to, to think that the outcome is just to get heaven. The outcome of the hope is a relationship with the living God. Relationship is the outcome, the desired connection with the living God. And the delay between the promise and the provision of the answer to that promise 
Here's what it's good for. It creates the opportunity for the development of that relationship. That we grow in our confidence in the God who who promises things and guarantees their fulfillment. The the hope is this wonderful gift because not only does it build uh, confidence, but it builds expectation. It, It grants us freedom to live today in light of what is true in the future. Jesus comes into this world 700 years before the time of Jesus that God spoke this to, the, to his followers. And listen, listen, just keep the covenant. Because here's what I'm doing. Didn't tell him 700 years, but here's what I'm doing. A child will be born. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And now, for us, the, the child has come and we're told that he's coming again. That one day he'll come back. It's as good as done. It's, it's guaranteed. It's happening. In fact, today, live in light of his return. Live in light of the victory that's going to come at the end of all time. Live today with the kind of freedom that you can live just with incredible generosity and kindness, moving toward others with the love of God. Because we don't have to manage our own hope. It's being taken care of for us. And so biblical hope is our response to the promises of God, to the promises of our good God. Confidence, expectation, as we actively await, engage this world and represent the love of God. That's the song of hope. If you're going to take a song with you anywhere, whether you're on a deserted island, working as an engineer, or in the health If you happen to be a student, you can take the song of hope with you into every situation. I know the answer. It's as good as done. In fact, you can count it so much, I can live freely today and offer kindness and generosity to the people around us.